0: Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Engage for Success, radio show number 444, or in actual fact, uh, not radio show number 444 as such, because we've had an issue with the original guest and then our replacement guest at the last minute hasn't been able to attend either. So what I've decided to do is share the audio from our recent event all around organizational integrity you can watch the event on our website on the video um, but this is actually the audio that I've stripped out from there uh, so that you can listen to that instead of this week's radio show it's a little bit longer it's a 90 minute event um, but with some really great interviews uh, in there so uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that and then next week it's radio show 445 Joe Moffat will be back with Dr. Bob Nelson and Mario Tomeo, who are authors of Work Made Fun Gets Done Easy Ways to Boost Energy, Morale, and Results. And they're going to be talking about allowing employees to have more fun at work by talking about simple, practical ideas for instantly bringing fun into work and the workplace. So that's Joe back with you next week.
2: Hello, everybody. Uh, it's lovely to indeed only virtually see all you lovely people who've managed to 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 get up um early enough and you know have a cup of tea uh, to join us um i'm nita clark i'm the um um i suppose one of the co-founders of Engage for success i uh, i wrote a report uh, with my wonderful work husband and colleague david McLeod a few years ago on employee engagement and um um a lot of the work of engage for success has, which has been going on for the last oh i don't know ten at least 10 12 years has kind of arisen out of our work and david and i are still i suppose you might call the the godfather and godmothers of this of this wonderful voluntary movement which is still going after all this time it's just it's just fantastic uh, it really is and it's it's kind of one of the most unusual um sort of campaigning movements that also as we all know supports um HR and other practitioners at work in developing engagement agendas. So firstly, I want to say a huge thank you to um, Nottingham Trent University for hosting this event. Um, Sarah Parson at Nottingham Trent is an absolute stalwart of the engagement success movement. And, uh, you know, we owe her a huge and the university a huge, huge um, amount. I'm not going to say very much, you'll be pleased to hear. I just wanted to locate today's discussion. You may know that uh, in our report, David and I identified four enablers, what we thought of as enablers of engagement, that organizations that took engagement seriously, wanted to do something about it, found quite useful. these are this is not a model. okay, these are lenses through which it's quite useful to view your um, current practice with a view to thinking about, Um, how to improve engagement. So these enablers, there are four. And in a sense, they they are um, absolutely common sense. There's nothing revolutionary about them. So the first is having visible, empowering leaders who share a strong story, the strategic narrative, which gives a line of sight to everybody working in the organization about what they are there to do. How do they, are they part of the bigger purpose? The second is having effective line managers, right, who know how to uh, engage with their people in their teams and boy, during the pandemic didn't we find out how important uh, having managers who could really uh, understand what was going on with each individual was. Um, so, uh, and as we know, having engaged, you know, the relationship with the manager is probably one of the key uh, engagement um, things. I mean, if you have a bad relationship with your manager, it's, it's often the determining factor in leaving an organisation. Thirdly is having strong employee voice. And both an architecture for employee voice, like, I don't know, a staff council or indeed a survey or um, a trade union recognition or whatever it is. But also having the fourth enabler, which we're going to talk about today, which is trust and integrity, Um, because making sure basically that the values on the wall and everybody's got values on the wall or on the mouse map, you know, are actually reflected in day to day behaviours. So there is no say, do gap. So those basically are the four enablers and we've had events on the other three and we're going to talk today um, absolutely um, with some fantastic speakers um, about the fourth one, which is trust. And I'm absolutely delighted as a result to be able to introduce um, here, uh, we've, we've, uh, that's, the, that's the enabler. So today to be able to introduce someone I've known for a very long time who is an exemplar of, of calm, analysis. Um, he's the man, if you, he doesn't mind me saying so, who's got his finger on the nation's pulse. And we were just talking and he's now got an international role, so he's got his finger on the international pulse um, and all the diversity that that, that means. So Ben, um, I think you will you will absolutely know about um, Ipsos. He's um, not just one of the founders, but he's a man who really does profoundly understand, um, you know, what people are thinking and more importantly, why they are thinking it, and um, he's the um, you know you'll have seen him on on telly and on the radio, and it's sort of you know um, uh, imparting his wisdom. He's worked with governments of all varieties. He's been a senior advisor, and he really is uh, the, the, the doyen. If this providing that's a masculine <laughs> form, I've just used. I'm
3: just I'm a feminine. I'm relaxed.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. that's thank God. Uh, He's a wonderful, wonderful speaker and a wonderful, wonderful person. And I'm absolutely delighted. Stop now
3: while I'm ahead. Stop now. (laughs) Thank you.
2: I'm I'm going to ask him uh, to speak to us all today. Ben, over to you.
3: Thank you very much. And uh, it's great to be here. Let me just try and uh, give you the slides, which uh, I'm afraid I'm a market researcher. So we do have uh, death by PowerPoint. Um, So listen uh, i'm re- i was really delighted to be asked to do this because in my career as a manager and i i never expected to be ceo of the uk business of ipsos let alone become a, an english ceo of a french company of uh, covering 90 countries but um what uh, and i think i only did it because i didn't like reporting to anybody else But I think what I found very useful in my time as a manager and a leader inside an organization has been the data actually on which we can now look at on what people want from at at work. And I, I think a question we have to ask ourselves is why we often give lip service to certain things. And certainly in my own work on leadership, I found that if you look at 40 different CEOs. Of organisations, they will actually often always describe leadership in very similar ways, but it's only when you sneak round the back, so to speak, and ask their secretary get their secretaries to show you how they spend their time that you start to understand why some of them are doing much better than others. And that's, um, I think, a key thing. And so that that difference is, and it's the same with us as consumers. We all want, we all say we want to save the planet, but of course, then when you look at our actual behaviour um it's slightly different and there are all there are all sorts of reasons for that so I, I just want to reflect on perhaps where we are as we come out of the pandemic into we we deal with the pandemic and we've now got a new problem which is globe is basically the four horsemen of the apocalypse which are we've got we've done the pestilence but the others are uh famine, destruction and death. And uh, I'm afraid some of those seem to be uh, stalking us. But anyway, so Ipsos, just in terms of my experience, we're, I'm now looking after a business of 18,000 people in 90 countries. And that, that, that in itself over the last year has been very instructive in, in the, the very different settings Uh, that people find themselves in around the world but also dealing with an organization that isn't just professional services people sitting in offices but actually includes uh, tens of thousands of people who are out day well when they're allowed to knocking on doors uh, or indeed other people going out doing mystery shopping and things like that so it's a very very diverse workforce and so looking at I think where we are and thinking about uh, how we build engagement and trust my sort of take on the situation that we're currently in is that we we have three broad things that we need to focus on and the, the first of all is what what where we are in terms of expectations on business and I think one thing that's particularly true for younger people but um, we can exaggerate that is that the pandemic has raised expectations of business particularly around purpose. Uh, around sustainability and in many countries but not all uh, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020 triggered a a huge interest in doing more on inclusion and diversity and I I, I don't have time to talk about that in in lots of detail but it's certainly a trend and so there is more expectation after the pandemic on doing more on those things and so even if you meet the old criteria for being a great employer for for trust etc You will find that particularly for young people they want more and my own experience during the pandemic was interesting because when black lives matter happened i as a guy born in 1965 said well look we're an expert organization all over the world we're filming the riots taking place in american cities at the moment with both republicans and democrats shooting footage of what's happening as part of our ethnographic work and our job as professionals is to really reflect how the world feels and for my young people, that was totally inadequate and they wanted me to go on camera because we were only talking on camera at this point and take the knee and swear, you know, which just felt to me uh, with my background as a bit fake, but it's, it's really interesting. We've now resolved it and done all sorts of things, but it was a moment. We've now, of course, come into this world of very high inflation. Uh, And all I I was addressing the world's central bankers in Switzerland last week. A year ago, the central bankers, people like Christine Lagarde in 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 Europe, Jerome Powell in America, were saying that inflation would be a 2021 phenomenon as we came out of lockdown and would then go away. They now say it's a a three year phenomenon, uh, but it's it's a and I and I think we we they may be wrong again, unfortunately. But certainly we've got this sort of sense of instability coming in in terms of what that's going to mean. And I'll look at how employees are reacting. And then across all of this are just the things that you all know about. And that Engage for Success has been focusing on forever, which is um, being appreciated in organizational culture. And those those don't change human beings. And we need to be very sensitive to that. People's fundamental needs really don't change. Wars, pandemics, uh, really, we've changed our behaviors uh and the 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 breaking of the taboo against remote working of course is the most dramatic but even that can be exaggerated we haven't changed our fundamental values and emotional needs particularly We're just perhaps having to address them using new technology. So um, overall, then the data on brand values and the importance of sustainability are very clear. Um, This is people saying they want to buy brands that reflect their personal values. There's Britain, there's America, there's France. And that's been a very, it's it's a trend that began before the pandemic. But I think people, the the pandemic was a liminal moment that focused us on what we were doing of our lives including our work in many cases uh, but also you know what what sort of business, what we think businesses should be doing so more people saying that they want to buy brands that have a purpose that reflects theirs um, and it's interesting when you look at how business thinks about itself you can see back in 2018 when we asked FTSE chief executives how they judged other companies only 17% mentioned ethics only 10% mentioned sustainability Fast forward to 2021 and ethics had gone up dramatically. Financial performance was pretty much the same as ever and sustainability up massively. Um, and of course, social responsibility up from 2% to one in five now mentioning it as a key factor that they take on board. So even the chief executives themselves are thinking more about you know other businesses and what they should be doing in this space. And we know that our, our employees expectations have risen. Um, Let's go on. Uh, So, and then if we look at, you know, how we did during the pandemic, generally employers and individual employers and then business were generally seen as doing better than government in terms of dealing with the pandemic. And you can see that um, this is a 14 country study that we ran. And are still running throughout uh, the pandemic, looking at different facets of it. What you can see though is the sort of fatigue now by as we get into this year. So lots of people were cut a lot of slack during the pandemic and now expectations are rising again in terms of uh, just how employers are doing in terms of looking after you, looking after the country. So in terms of where we find ourselves now, I would say um, certainly a lot of people feeling Burnt out. But interestingly, particularly the young, uh, that's that, that's very clear. Um, and and you know, feeling that they we need a new status quo. Uh, it is true that the, the the half or so of the population who are able to routinely remote work um, are saying that it's helping them. So, 79% of people working at home say that the organisation is doing well on health and well being. It's 78% among hybrid workers. People who actually go on site, it's actually a bit lower. Um, and there are there are some aspects there because of course certain sorts of jobs that tend to be done on site, more manufacturing, more more physical retail, etc. And so some of that is sectoral. But nevertheless, um, you know, certainly we feel that organisations are looking out for us. Um, but and generally the preference now is to spend more time at home. Britain is quite different to some other European countries. So you know, there's Britain, forty six percent. France, I'm in Paris at the moment, Uh, the office is pretty empty on a Friday, but they're certainly whipped into the office more than they are in London, 37%. And then you've got countries like Poland where only 19% want to work at home more. Um, uh, After the the pandemic, but Britain is one of the places and if you look at the data on office occupancy, we have the lowest rebound in terms of office occupancy of any large economy. So Britain really likes remote working and the Prime Minister may call people who work at home cheesemongers, but I fear he may be just talking about himself. Overall then, you know, are you, you know, people do say that they're working longer. They may not be commuting, but they're under, they're on, they're turned on and tuned in and looking at things for longer. And you can see that people earning more money are a bit more likely to be responding to messages out of office hours, et cetera, um, and feeling that their work-life balance is suffering. And so lots of people saying that they support the right to be disconnected, turn things off as VW and others have done. Uh, And that again, giving, I think this this key point, one of the most successful slogans of any campaign in the last 50 years was take back control. And what the pandemic has given people is the ability in some ways to take back some control of their lives, not having to be on the 805 crowded train every single day to arrive at an office at nine o'clock and sit there in silence doing their work for, for eight hours and then and then get back on another very crowded train. They now have much more flexibility and they appreciate it. But expectations will just keep rising. The number of young people now who are just demanding to be allowed to work completely remotely uh, is is really is, is fascinating to me. Um, and that we, we need to we do need to be a bit careful about this. though. I and mean, this is the this is the sort of level of churn um, from the ONS. And it doesn't show that it's um, sort of gone up it's, it's, you know, things during the pandemic shut down. We're now returning to normal type of levels. But in terms of vacancies, there is a, a war for talent, particularly in certain sectors, particularly in certain countries. And actually, in, in terms of my global footprint, we may feel we have problems in the UK. But you ain't seen nothing yet if you're in China or India or even the United States. But certainly, there are more vacancies. Uh, you know, it's there. Finding the right people uh, is, is is a real issue and I think one of the things that I would implore people to do with my hat as the as a trustee of the Center for Aging Better um, is to look at people like me as potentially people you might actually employ. I'm 57 years old. And there has been, that there always was, but it was getting better before the pandemic. And since the pandemic, the pattern has resumed with a vengeance. It is the over 55s who are not getting opportunities. There's half a million over 55s who want to work, but can't get a job. Uh, and that's despite concern about unemployment in the United Kingdom being the lowest uh, we've ever recorded. Um, and so when I graduated from university or started my, University career in 1983, I was delighted to get into a, a posh university, not because I thought I was going to have a glittering career, because at this point, concern about unemployment was at over 80%. And I therefore thought, you know, my God, at least I'll get a job if I go to Oxford. Now, as you can see, Virtually nobody is worried about unemployment and instead they're worried about something else, which is inflation. This is the global data uh, from our studies of of over 20 countries every month. And you can see concern about COVID-19 this year has fallen off a cliff. We're not worried about that anymore, but we have the highest level of concern about inflation globally that uh, we've ever measured. And of course, in the UK, the challenge is that currently um, the public believe that inflation will rise to about 5.5%. That's their median expectation. And of course, those of you reading the newspapers or online will know the Bank of England is now saying 10 percent and say that it's currently 9 percent. So consumers are worried about inflation, but they're not as worried as they would be if they'd all act, were paying absolute attention to the data, they're going to get more worried. And so one thing I've been doing for the governors of the central bank, so are very interested in this, of course, because they want to know if people are going how consumers will react as they put up interest rates or as things become more expensive is what are people doing and at the moment people are spending less on going out talking about not buying a new fridge or a washing machine or a kitchen or a car or going on an expensive holiday we don't have we've got a few people we've got some people saying they'll use less heating electricity etc because don't know about you my electricity bill and heating bill has gone from a thousand pounds a year to about three thousand pounds a year but um, at the moment interestingly relatively few people uh, and even when I look at employees, it's, it's the same saying that they're going to go and ask for a pay rise. And as you know, most pay rises are currently running well below inflation. I think it's averaging around 4% when inflation is now 9%. And if anything, they're, perhaps because their employers tell them it's not possible, they're more likely just to go and look for another job somewhere else. And uh, certainly that we were really interested in that. Uh, people seem to be, you know, at the moment, haven't haven't made a flip into what some people on this call may be old enough to remember, which is the wage price spiral, which is what happened in the 1970s episode of inflation. But so far, that's not happening. Um, so we have but we have to watch this because, as I say, consumers and, and employees are behind the times. So I think in terms of where we are, I would say change, of course, is overrated. Um, in terms of how all of this new world is going to work, um, uh, people who uh you know um uh, say that their line managers supportive of them um are much more likely to want to stay hybrid so go figure and the people who are also able to stay hybrid say that they like are much more likely to say they're being able to balance their work and personal life and i think a key thing even if you can't give your people a nine percent pay rise and if you're in the public sector god knows what the pay rise will be but you can we can look at how we give people more control My sector is one that is always uh, where where the payroll budget is always under pressure, but I found in running my businesses over the years that even when I I can do things like give people their birthdays off, extra holiday, more flexibility, time to go. I gave one year, I gave everybody when I didn't have a lot of money for pay rises, I gave everybody just um, two days to do whatever they like in terms of thinking about work, go and lie on a beach, read a book, but think about how to make the business better, including the cleaners, the receptionists. We can, we can look at that, but so much will come down as ever to line managers, I think. And you know, when you look at why people say they're leaving, uh, my colleagues at Carrion and Box, which is our uh, employee research business, you know, here's their data, pretty much the same as ever. Yes, there's concern about job security, but as ever, it's the managers and what they do and don't say how they look after people. There's an increase in workload pressures Um, Because many businesses like mine cut, of course, headcount during 2020 to balance our costs as our revenues fell and then found in 2021 that we weren't able to recruit as quickly as we'd have liked as the economy took off again, leaving us with more work, uh, but not the same quantity of people. Uh, So, But overall, manager behaviour is still up there at the top. Not feeling motivated, et cetera. So, and lots of things around communication. Um, and it's interesting, and when we look at you know what's what's going on in terms of getting communications right, this is looking at um, how much people trust the manager to do what they say they will. And you can see here, you know, if you use email, it's about 65% believe that you will do what you say you will. Interestingly, the format that we're using today, which of course exploded during the pandemic. Uh, actually produces higher levels of trust than than just just email. And I think that's a a key learning for me, and I'd be interested in other people on the call, but I will have to shut up soon so we can hear from Chris, is that um, being able to speak directly to thousands of people in a way that I could only previously do with a lot of our, you know, when I was running the UK, I had 13 offices and every three months I would religiously go to the Oxford office. I would religiously go to the Manchester office, the Edinburgh office and talk to people face to face. Being able to suddenly use a face to face communication like this was actually a massive improvement than my previous town halls. But still, as you can see on the far right of this chart. Those physical in real life meetings still really, really matter. We can't just assume that we can do it all hybrid, even though hybrid can work better than just posting stuff online or sending emails. Um, And so, you know, generally virtual is better than one way, but we still need to build into our schedules that those face to face meetings and that really will really, really matter in in terms of how people judge whether they trust us or not. So what do they want from people's managers? It's the same stuff that you all know about. Be regular um uh, making making it part of one of the things that's very clear in my work my own work among among CEOs and their effectiveness is the ones who are religious about making sure they make time for the communications elements they make time for the relevant one to ones they make time to tell the story They massively outperform those who sort of wait until people start grumbling before they do anything. Telling people how they're doing—it's a no-brainer. But again, the British—we're very—we don't—we feel uncomfortable about having those conversations. Build the systems, build the processes, make it part of what you do. The data is incontrovertible. Recognizing the greatest human need is to be appreciated, uh, you know, as we know. So make sure build that into your communications. And then, you know, of course, letting people feel involved in decisions, not being run by trade unions. I have a workers council. Uh, in this build, in in my French office. And there, I don't have any trade unions in Britain. And interestingly, the people with the Workers' Council, because of other issues around culture, are the most miserable in the entire global company. Um, And the, the part, the business with no unions at all, actually much, much happier, interestingly. And it's all about culture rather than structure. Um, But overall, in general, people say that our our leaders in Britain are generally good at modelling resilience when we're faced with challenges. I think what the the, the world that we're now in, and it's not clear what's going to happen to the economy. Are we going to have a recession? I think it's becoming more and more likely, uh, and many of us on this call have lived through them before. And what do we know? We know that all of the things on this chart, psychological safety, empowerment, closeness, authenticity become even more in demand. Uh, at a time of change. And I think that the way in which the economy may change in the next 18 months or so, the data for 2023 that I'm seeing make me pretty worried, mean that the pressures on us to deliver this will be will be even even greater. If you think of those months in 2020, when we switched to hybrid working for knowledge businesses, we switched off, we immediately took everything uh, online, etc. Amazing times. We will have to think about the next crisis a bit like that, because you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, and the late great Peter Drucker, and then it has structure for lunch. It's always true, and you know, we know all these things are the things that build trust. I, I personally don't like talking about trust too much because, actually, it hasn't really changed anywhere near as much as people think. Trust in professionals has generally risen, um, and generally, I would say competence in what matters to people is what you should obsess about more than just trust per se. And that is about all of the things on this chart, all of all of those things. If you do those, you will get, you, you will have trust from your employees. And as I say to my clients who are thinking about their reputation, big banks, big tech companies, Google is my largest client, obsess about competence, not trust. And if you can get that right in terms of being a great employer, being a great boss, then you will win. So we're beginning to see the changes. I think we're too close to the trees to see the forest at the moment as to whether or not hybrid working is going to, to be here to stay or maybe by 2027 we'll decide, oh my God, we've just lost all of our social capital in our businesses and we have to make people spend time together physically a bit more. We don't yet know. Uh, But certainly working out what tasks need to be done remotely can be done in your own time. What tasks need to be done physically together, I think, is an ongoing process. All of the basics for employers, they're not, they don't change. But I think it does mean managing people you can't see on a daily basis is, is different. And one needs to, it means, unfortunately, you have to think about it even more. And if building trust matters, I think what's clear is that for me, that the, the human demand as an as an employee for 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 your attention, for, and particularly when you're remote, um, your the need for transparency. If anything, that's just going to rise, and it's it's coupled with a generational shift where there is you know all people of all ages want the same thing from employers. They want clarity. They want respect. They want a clear career path. But the young, in particular, our our latest generation, the Gen Z's who are now, you know, 26, 27 and upwards, um, they they really, they really, really expect um, more more of this transparency and uh, think about think about what that means, because as 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 the workforce changes, the pressures continue. But overall, much the same. Great management is what matters. Ultimately, if you do that, you'll have trust. The end.
2: Ben, that's ben, that absolutely fantastic amount of um, food for thought there. We've got just a couple of minutes. Can I just ask you one question? I mean, I think you could make an argument that the scale of the the challenge that the, 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 the kind of current world order poses, um, I'm not sure that people necessarily feel the government, um, perhaps any government, but certainly the government we have at the moment, is kind of rising to these very big challenges or isn't even... Uh, you know, aware of some of the dimensions. How optimistic are you that UK employers get the scale of the challenge and perhaps feel that they can rise to it? Because all of the things you've said make absolute sense and I'm sure are resonating hugely with the audience. How optimistic are you?
3: Well, I think British business um, had some of the when we compare people's ratings globally of how their employers reacted to COVID-19 British business actually got a thumbs up globally from uh, it's from, from employees so I think it's pretty, I think we did well uh, and, the, and the the pivot to uh, well-being and looking up obviously it was a medical pandemic I think is a really interesting one, and one of the signs we're starting to see is people having, as well as a you know an HR or human you know talent department or whatever you want to call it, having somebody whose job is is well-being, a chief wellness officer. I think is a permanent, and I think the role of the expectations for employees, all of those things that we did to look after people's physical safety during the pandemic, in a sense you one needs to retain that, but think about their things like financial well-being. We may not be able to put up pay as much as we would like. But interestingly, there's all sorts of other things that we can provide, like just advice. You know, we employ tens of thousands of graduates and they don't know how to use credit cards, how to, how to use loans, how to they don't even know that they ought to get a pension. You know, they should sign up for the pension scheme. So just providing some of this extra curriculum, not just about the job and the mission, important though that is, but providing space and attention to other facets of our employees lives. I think that's a permanent shift. And I think the the sorts of pressures we're seeing on cost of living. Um are only, are only going to mount but you know you can't my American colleagues last year tried to deal with the retention issue. Uh, we've now fired the country manager concerned just with money and the Americans are much more venal than the British they love they are much more obsessed about bonus and salaries than the British if you haven't managed Americans you I, I think can I can tell you all about it. But actually, even there, they even there, psychological safety, feeling looked out for somebody who's concerned about what I'm eating, someone who's concerned about am I exercising, someone who's concerned about how am I looking after my money, and what you know are there different ways we can configure various benefits and bonuses, et cetera for you, all of that stuff really matters.
2: No, absolutely. And I mean, in a sense, as you say, it makes the complexity of the task facing um, you know leaders. They need just increasingly think about other things than simply the core business. Ben, thank you so much. Um, it was really um, incredibly thought provoking, as we knew that it, it would be. And I hope that you know some of the information on the slides we're going to be able to share. Of I, I mean, it's uh, it's a fantastic basis, you know, for, for people going out in their organisations saying, "Hey, we need to think about this stuff." You know, there's there's proper evidence. Thank you very much, Ben. Okay. It's lovely to see you and. Uh, you know, good luck in the coming period, too, Thank with all your international responsibilities. Thank you. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Right, as if that wasn't enough food for thought, colleagues, we are now going to have a, a, a session where Chris Pitt, who is uh, absolutely um, fantastic exemplar you know, of how to get leadership right in some of these areas, is going to be interviewed by Charlotte. Now, um, you you may not all necessarily know about First Direct, although it is one of the most prestigious brands and that has sustained a a wonderful trajectory over the years since we first started doing the work on engagement. And it's it's a financial services provider, but with an extremely high internal reputation and unsurprisingly, uh, as a result, an extremely high external um, reputation. And, and, you know, Chris as the CEO, I mean, he basically definitely leads one of the best customer services business in the UK and has, and it, as I say, it's been achieving that consistently. And so what we're going to have is is the lovely Charlotte. I mean, Chris is lovely too, don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, but we've got um, Charlotte, who is um, the creative planning director of, of, of Woodreed and co-founder of um, the employee uh, communications platform Muse. So Chris um, is going to be put on the spot in the nicest possible way um, by Charlotte. So I'm hoping that they're both ready and I'll hand over to them. Thank you so much, Nita. Now, I've got
4: to admit to being slightly starstruck this morning. Um, For me, this is the equivalent of a Fight Club fan meeting um, Brad Pitt for the first time. (laughs) I'm about to talk to the CEO of a brand that I have put on a pedestal for many years as my example of an organization that gets so much of what Engage for Success talks about right. Um, I'm about to talk to the CEO um, of First Direct from one one pit to another. (laughs) How are you?
5: He's my ugly brother.
4: Of course he is. I knew that. I've done my research, Chris.
5: I must admit, I'm quite glad he's, he's clearly been on the sea for many years, but it makes explaining what my t- my surname is much, much easier. So I just say as in Brad.
4: Well, do you know what my surname is? It's Dahl, as in rolled. Yes,
5: I, I, I must admit that did occur to me as I was writing your name down, Charles.
4: Totally. If I had a pound and if you had a pound. Anyway, listen, <laughs> enough Enough about, enough about me. Um, let, let's just begin, Chris, by getting you to tell everybody a little bit about your background and your journey to your current role of CEO of First Direct.
5: Oh, th- thank you. I mean, and, um, and thank you for uh, Nita, for Charlotte, for the setup. I mean, do not be starstruck by me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping a seat warm uh, for the thirty years previous to to me of the people who've delivered such brilliant customer service. So absolutely nothing to do with me. Um, I'm I've got an extraordinarily boring, average background. Really, I'm a career um, marketeer in financial services. Um, I started. Uh, for the TSB, the original TSB at uh, in uh, for TSB England and Wales near the Tower of London um, in the late 1980s. Um, I ended up working for Mark and Spencer Financial Services out of Chester um, working as a working continuing to work in the financial services industry doing product marketing and I, over the course of my career I've launched mortgages, current accounts, uh, insurance products set out. Um, I've worked for First Direct, um, for a couple of years and then went back to Marks & Spencer. and we got bought by HSBC and I ended up in Moscow, uh, in Istanbul, uh, standing HSBC up internationally across the whole of Europe, where Europe for HSBC was Paris to Almaty in Kazakhstan um, and Valletta in Malta to Warsaw in Poland. Um, I then went to work for Tesco Bank um, in uh, Edinburgh um, so I was the marketing director of Tesco Bank as it moved away from Royal Bank of Scotland and set up its own infrastructure and went from 100 odd people up to thousands of people. Um, I then rejoined HSBC uh, and had a very interesting commute from Edinburgh to London for two and a half years uh, because I didn't want to take my youngest son out of school. Um, it was in the last couple of years of schooling. Um, and then I became the CEO, very proud to become the CEO of First Rates. Eighteen months ago, so during the continuation of lockdowns into the opening up of the world that we're now in today.
4: Brilliant. So, gosh, you've you've certainly come into a baptism of fire, having joined at the time of, of the pandemic. And um, so, for those of you who don't know, uh, First Direct has been a pioneering business in so many ways, hasn't it? Uh, could you t- could you tell us a little bit about how you how you how you've led the way?
5: Yes, FD was famously launched a minute past midnight on Sunday the 31st of October 1989. uh, Deliberately so by the founding fathers and mothers of FD to kind of cock a snoop to the fact that that this was a time when everybody banked using a branch and, but you could only go there between half past nine and three o'clock. And most people queued up uh, of a lunchtime uh, to stand in a queue to get a little piece of paper stamped by somebody behind a bandit screen. To say that you'd inserted your 10 pounds check or your uh, 100 pounds in cash into your account a- an fd revolutionized banking 24 7365 um human to human so no ivr so no press one press two stand on your head uh you know wiggle your toes sort of thing you just ring us up and you speak to a human being um and again all, all uk bank call centres, so you talk to someone who's got some empathy with your own situation. I, I don't say, I, I, by inferring that, I don't infer any kind of implicit racism in that. But it's the fact that you've got people who can directly empathise with your own situation because they are uh, on the same landmass as you. Yeah. Um, that has continued forever and a day. I think uh, we're a business of one and a half, 1.6 million customers, we're looking to actually grow ourselves quite substantially over the next few years. Um, but at the heart of being that successful organisation, especially when everybody used to go into a branch and the idea of ringing people up and saying, I'm going to move some money and it happening. Uh, and I spoke to the original CEO of First Direct last year as part of some work we were doing around our purpose. Y- you needed to have brilliant customer service to be standout uh, and to attract people to an environment where, you know, financial services is about protecting your money fundamentally. And therefore, there's an inherent risk in going into something so new as it was back in the late 1980s. So he recognised and the team that launched FD recognised that superb customer service needed to be at the heart of FD to attract people. And, and FD has famously recruited people who know nothing about banking, we, we, but they know an awful lot about people.
4: And you know what? I've, I've, I've quoted that line so many times when I've been talking about your organisation. And I have to admit as well, I am actually a customer.
5: I got that impression, Charlotte.
4: Did you? Well, from my, are you going to get out of a restraining order after this? <laughs> okay, so from a from a brand and internal culture perspective, first Direct is renowned for its clearly fabulous advertising. I think we've got some examples up here now, and a set of brand values is delivered consistently inside and out. You know, you you truly are one brand inside and out. And in fact, I don't know whether you knew, but the the advertising legend Dave Trott was actually tweeting about your current campaign at the beginning of the week. So did, did, did this sense of did, did this sense of one brand inside and out did it come about by accident um, or design? and if the latter, how is it so important to first direct success?
5: Very much by design, but as, and as, as I say, with no false modesty, this is nothing to do with me. This is absolutely a function um, of the people who set up first direct at the very beginning. And I think it's more striking when you go back to the world that was 1989 um, and the kind of the culture that existed, uh, that existed in in, in that late 1980s. And as a child of that period or kind of coming into my adulthood at that period, this idea that of one-upmanship, of kind of Porsches and loads of money, that kind of world, this is a world of um, altruism in FD. Uh, and everybody is exactly the same and everybody should be treated exactly the same and that has permeated our culture internally and externally um, ever since. So yeah if if you want to I could bring it to example for you in a couple of examples. So um, this week in fact I I was sitting in our offices in Sturton in um, kind of working class part of Leeds. I had a spare hour I thought I'm going to go and listen to some calls and just have a engage with some of the people in FD. And we call people in FD FD people rather than colleagues. Um, so I wandered over to to find one of the team managers because I didn't really want to just kind of roll up to somebody and scare the living daylights out of them. Um, I said I'd like to listen to some calls, and um, so we wandered over to a couple of reps, as we call the guys. And you know, did you you're listening to some calls? Chris would like to listen to some calls. So. The lady who I spoke to, I kind of always go up and say, hello, I'm Chris. And kind of half the time they say, we're kind of like, don't be so daft, we know who you are. But no, I don't really want to presume that, to be honest. Um, so we were chatting to a couple of these reps and clearly one of the ladies kind of recognized me. The, the other guy said, um, I know you, don't I? And I said, um, yeah, well, I, I kind of work here, mate. And I just, i not just kind of walked in off the streets. He said, um, what do you do then? I said, um, well, I'm I'm actually the chief executive. He said, I thought I'd seen you on some posters. Now, (laughs) I was telling my my leadership team, I'm just out of the office today, we were telling that story, and that that is is what FD is all about. You know, when I go to get a cup of tea uh, in the office, everybody has the right and has the uh, observed right uh, and kind of takes up that right to, to say to me, Tell me what they think of what's going on, or what's happening, or how we can make things better. Um, which makes, to be honest, quite frightening going to cut a cup of tea sometimes. But um, but people, you know, we're all the same. And and I, I borrow with pride something when I worked amongst & Spencer Financial Services. The CEO once said to me, which is, I'm an employee like you, Chris. You know, this is not my company. This is our company, and and I always repeat that line whenever i do what we call exchanges we engage with people and kind of people can say whatever they like to us and we kind of uh, it's a very whole no holes barred conversation that we do internally you know that is the essence of our culture I, i i am an employee this is not my company i didn't set it up um i'm not that clever or brave um so we're doing this together and if we don't do this together we won't achieve anything
4: Brilliant, that's it. fantastic and you know that actually leads us brilliantly on to what we want to focus on today which is the fourth enabler um, of, of engagement and it's about organisational integrity and you, you, you've just so beautifully illustrated what we mean by this. It's making sure that the values on the wall are reflected in the day-to-day behaviours of everyone in the business from the CEO down to the, the newest recruit that there's no say-do gap anywhere. So can you tell us Chris, how you at First Direct um, make sure that your values, and I'd love you to share what your values are because I know that they're they're typically First Directy in in their tone. Um, So share your values and, 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 and tell us how you make sure that those values are not simply words on a poster.
5: Yeah, so I mean our values are stand together, bring a smile, make things better, and give a shit
4: beautiful <laughs> see that's um, what i mean Cla- classic classic first direct tone of voice through everything that you do brilliant so ha- how do you bring those to life then? how do you make sure there's no say do gap
5: well i think first of all it's it's being very inquisitive and open relative to what people think is going on on the ground you know my, my business is 1800 1900 and primarily people on the phones you know the salaries those guys earn is relatively, you know, it's 24, 25 grand as an average, and and making sure that they have the opportunity to say whether these things are real and live on the on the ground. So we have snapshot surveys, you know, colleague surveys. We also have kind of an EMPS, so a regular uh, monthly survey of three questions, which is: Would you recommend FD? Would you buy our products? And and how is your welfare? Um, we've seen our EMPS go up 30 points actually over the course of the last couple of months as we have, you know, kind of catching on to the previous conversation as we've implemented what we call our future of work uh, first stage. So we, we, I think you've really got to keep your, your kind of mouth shut and your ears open. N- never get lost in your own sense of brilliance um, or, or, or what you're doing or that you're doing right. You never get this right, it's just a constant flow. And I'm a great believer in, in you want to talk to, we have four stratifications of kind of performance within FDHSBC, which is top, strong, good, and needs development. And and to move our business on, we, we don't need to just focus on the top people or equally beat the people who need development with a stick. What you need to really engage to is the good people. If you can make the good people stronger and make the strong people top, your business will absolutely take off, and and it's un- listening to those people, the people who are, um, the, have the least power. Again, I think a culture which uh, is healthy is one that focuses on the people with the least power within it, and delivers for them, because all the boats will rise on that tide. Um, and so that that is is how we kind of continue to reflect upon it. Um, and kind of make sure that we're we're delivering um, to what that is. So, in, in terms of kind of the current, what we've gone out with our future of work is we've basically gone out and said you can work wherever you like.
4: Yeah, work where you're most productive is a, is a great line, I think.
5: Yeah, and and the the reason we can say that is because we did um, some pilots of bringing people back into the office at a point during last year, and we found that actually the people um, were more productive at home than they were in the office when you're doing. Uh, customer service telephony work. The, the collaborative nature of it is relatively minimal. Um, clearly you don't want people to be isolated, but the collaborative nature of it. Uh, and it, it, it really has talked to, um, and I, I really like Simon Sinek's model of mastery autonomy purpose.
4: Oh yes, absolutely.
5: Yeah. Yep. It really gives autonomy in, in a world where autonomy is kind of a slight anathema, which is the construct around telephony service, because you need a bit of a a regimentation around it to make sure that you're delivering for people at the right times. But what in within that kind of need, what you want to do is give as much autonomy to those people as you possibly can, because if you do that, they're firing on all cinders for themselves and for the business rather than feeling being controlled into it, really.
4: Yeah, and what he proved, of course, is that if you're... If, if you've got autonomy, mastery, and purpose right, it, the, 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 the salary is, is less important, actually, so long as you're playing to those factors. Um, and actually now focusing kind of more in on your call centre employees, given the nature of your business and with many of your people, I mean, it must be a vast percentage of your, of your employees that are call centre employees. How do you make sure, and actually given, given this new hybrid nature that you've just been discussing, how do you make sure that your values are real, authentic and owned at a local level?
5: Yeah, I think that we clearly we have a constant dialogue with um, the, the team managers to make sure that they kind of they know what we think is the most important thing to do. I think you need to model it yourself. So, I mean, I talk to customers and I only talk to customers who FD hasn't done quite as well as we wanted to every Monday night. So do uh, you, pull, make you sure... call them
4: up, you contact them personally, do you? Yeah,
5: yeah I talk to two customers every, every week who we know from... NPS surveys or from within our complaints area that uh, we haven't done as well as we wanted to do, and I kind of talk to them directly and listen to their feedback, and we make sh- and that works extraordinarily well in engaging with people on the phones because the, the people on the phones know that you're doing the similar work to they're doing and taking on the people who are the people who are the, the most unhappy, um, not in a, an adversarial way, but just to kind of listen. Um, so that's very important. I think this idea that we're all in this together, kind of that point around we're all people together, you know, so I, my wife still, me and my wife still haven't quite a cotton dot and my two children have left home so we've cooked too much food so I always take a little Tupperware dish of food in and heat it up at the microwave standing there. I had one of the reps the other day explain to me how the microwave worked and then she she teamsed me afterwards and said I'm now your coach and I said I'm out of back and said yes absolutely. Um, so just kind of being there and being real, kind of wandering around, being part of it. So I think, but but equally not getting your own lens, getting sense in your, lost in your own sense of, of really understanding without listening. So continuing to go out and listen and be active in that space is is vitally important. And then I think we, we do things that, I always think of them as top of the iceberg thing. So we are going to reconfigure our workplace. We're gonna put in um, mother and baby units, prayer uh, offices we're going to we, we know that we need to be more uh, engaging to all parts of the community as part of that uh, we're going to ha- we've always famously had um, creches very good creches on both of our sites which was was a real move into the future in the late 1980s but we're going to have a dog crash um, for people who want to bring their dogs in um, because of the pandemic and lots of people have pets as well um, so that's There's some of the kind of like you need some iconography, I think, which kind of brings to life your values in a a top of the iceberg sort of way. I think.
4: Yeah, yeah, some tangible, some some hallmarks. Okay, so thinking about your customers, what what's the value of a strong values based culture for your for your customers? Can they do they do they feel it? Can they can they feel your values?
5: Did you not give an exemplar of that when you introduced me?
4: Well, quite exactly. Maybe it was. A, maybe so, that's a rhetorical question, Greg.
5: <laughs> so for every 100 FD customers, 55 of them would recommend us. Um, we only have eight, usually eight or nine people who are in the detractor space. Um, on Trustpilot, we're 4.2, 4.3. So kind of the outward metrics kind of talk to that. We okay. we train... Sorry. Go, carry on. We, we Our our people have no script. They talk directly to our customers, um, and we have no average handling time. So we absolutely do not want people to kind of close people down. We want to engage people as human beings, um, and wrap themselves around. Financial services is a toxic mix of very, very boring, but very, very complicated. And what we want to do is is make sure that we are there for people on a human level rather than a kind of a mechanical level.
4: Yeah. And, you know, and again, mm-hmm. you can you can you can feel that coming through what you said earlier about the fact that you you recruit. I mean, I, I think I got it right. This is what I always used to talk about with, with First Direct. You recruit great communicators and you teach them all about banking and finance after.
5: You no, know. absolutely. The way I describe it is someone who doesn't know their standing order from their direct debit. The
4: <laughs> I'd be great then.
5: I, I don't really know what it is either.
4: <laughs> right, you know, and and that's really. I mean, I was I was going to talk about um, how you how you recruit for values, and actually re- that that really says it in a, in a nutshell, doesn't it? How you how you're recruiting to fit your fit your
2: culture.
5: Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I, I, the the acid test for me, Charlotte, is. I mean, I I am a huge introvert, massive off the scale, but most people in FT because they because they're human are massive in- extroverts. So that's where, whenever I walk around the office, I know that I'm going to be jumped. I'm going to be jumped by all these extroverts, and you see it. I mean, I go to the we we have an academy in FD, and every Friday, people graduate from the academy within into the call centre, and I go to that graduation ceremony um, and talk to the guys who graduate, um, and hand out the certificates and things. And the very you, you we there's a anecdotally you know that you're getting it right because those guys never shut up. It's like you just let them off they're all chatting away they're all going on about how brilliant the the person who's helped them into fd and how kind and caring people have been it, it kind of comes out in the anecdotes and then it, it come, comes out in the customer metrics that we continue uh to measure i mean the the biggest exemplar of it as a story i think i can give you and, and this is from a while back now but it's kind of true of well i'll give you two examples very briefly one, one is in 9 11 a brit who was involved in 9-11, called First Direct. He was sitting there covered in dust from the the Twin Towers, and he called First Direct. And the reason he called First Direct is because he knew someone would answer the phone, and he didn't know whether someone would answer the phone from his family, and he knew whoever spoke to him would be kind to him. and and what that rep did is that rep actually identified where he was in new york and got the emergency services to come and find him and help him
4: that is the most incredible story it's just so powerful
5: but the equivalent again because it's quite a while ago an equivalent of a story again that a rep did most recently is that a rep was talking to a squaddie um on a british army base and. She got talking to him about, he, you know, came, he rang up to Transact on his camp. He got talking to him and found out basically he was suffering uh, mentally. He was suffering from depression and he was, she, the conversation she got into him was that he was thinking about um, taking his own life and she found out where he was uh, and she got in contact with the, the person who ran that base. Um, and then that guy, they went and she reached out to that guy um, to help him to make sure he was okay and uh, he actually got some med- medical attention as a function of that but she did that off her own back after that call
4: it's extraordinary i mean you know it, it's literally like F- fd is the most anti bank in terms of how you would think about the 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 the, aut- the kind of the automated uh, faceless Sense of 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 many banks, you, you you know you're doing something quite quite different. Now I'm really conscious that actually we've only got a few minutes left, so I'm just going to switch quickly. Just to talking about um, metrics, um, you know we've no, we've all known, you know James Heskett's service profit chain. We know that there is there is a real and tangible and provable link between employee engagement, employee experience, and customer KPIs. Now have you been able to quantify the link between CX and EX at First Direct?
5: Um, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do. I think, um, you know, we, we are of, 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 all the challenger banks, as are described in the UK, we're the only one that makes any money. Um, you know, and I, am I, I, you know, we all know the fintechs are, and I, I think they've done a fantastic job. I've done the the, 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 bravery and the progressiveness of the leadership of those businesses and what they've delivered is genius. So I, I, I mean, saying that I'm in no way being dis- disrespectful or discrediting them but you just need to look at the kind of the of the way the PL works and, and as a guy I w- I, f- I worked for at Tesco bank once said you can't do good things if you don't exist um so we we make money and we have an awful lot of people who have a lot of money on deposit with us uh, and, and in in a world of rising interest rates you know you don't need me to tell you that that banks that's how banks make money the, the margin between what they um, the savings rates are given, the, the lending rates they charge. So, implicitly, I, I think though you just the, the fundamental thing that about FD is you've got to do the right thing. You know, one a penny that dropped with me not so long ago in some research is that the reason people have often the most contrary relationships with their banks is they have a sense of entitlement relative to the customer service because when you contact your bank it's your money and therefore if anything isn't right or doesn't happen as quickly as you want or isn't perfect this is your money so there's an there's an inherent sense of entitlement within that and what, what you what fd does is it kind of To your point, it delivers on managing other people's money brilliantly because it recognises that it is their money.
4: Brilliant. Um, I'm going to we've got one more minute. So I'm going to just ask you, challenge you in one minute to what would you say to the cynics who say that organisational values and investing in providing a great employee experience doesn't matter?
5: I'd say you're going to work for a company that I want to really work for.
4: Brilliant. Perfect. It has been an absolute pleasure to be able to chat to you today, Chris, and continue to do your incredible work for, for FD. And I will continue to be your your loyal customer.
5: Thank you, Thank you very much, Charlotte. That was Take really, care. really nice to talk to you.
4: Yeah, you too. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you. Bye.
2: Right, that was
6: a quick handover. Very slick, eh? How about that? (laughs) Well, thank you so much, uh, Charlotte. And uh, Chris is going to going to stay with us Um, and we're now going to move on to our uh, panel discussion to close off today's session. Uh, and so um, I'm going to be hosting that. Um, as I say, Chris is going to stay with us. So thank you for that, for our final half hour. Nita, um, who, who started this whole thing off in so many ways, <laughs> is, uh, is going to join us for the panel as well. And I'm pleased to welcome um, two new speakers to today's session. Um, we have Tamar Hughes, who is Group Head of Talent, Development and Inclusion at Phoenix Group. Uh, so welcome Tamar and also um, Shahina Ormarod-Sakadina, who is internal communications manager at Penguin Random House um, and also um, a volunteer with the Engage for Success movement who I who I know and have worked with for a while as well so welcome welcome to you to Shahina Um, so I wonder we've obviously already heard from Chris and we and, and we've kind of heard from from Nita as well along the way but can we start first of all um, briefly um, with a couple of minute take uh, from both our new our newbies Tamar and Shahina on on this topic of the fourth enabler, the importance of values being lived, um, and 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 and, uh, and their view on that, and then we'll have a bit of a discussion and a debate around the topic. Perhaps can I start with uh, with with you, um, Shahina?
0: Yeah. Um, so. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much um, for having me as part of this panel. Um, As Joe will tell you, I'm really passionate about employee engagement, which is why I'm also a volunteer with Engage for Success. And I think we've talked today about um, the say do gap um, from an organisational perspective, but if I think about, you know, my experience as an employee and my level of engagement and how I feel about work and that sense of meaning I get from work, it's very much, you know, what it is that I'm attracted to um, by an organisation or a company. And if that doesn't filter to, through to my day-to-day experience at work, that's when I feel that sort of lack of engagement or, you know, I'm not driven to do my best at work. Um, I would say, thankfully, that hasn't been my experience at Penguin Random House. And um, I think the values and the, the the work that they do that made me want to to, to work there are the ones that I experience in my interaction on a day-to-day basis. So um, if I were to give an example, one of the things that really interested me was um, the work that they do around social impact. And they've got a couple of programmes, one which is called Lit in Colour, um, about sort of bringing diverse authors to the school curriculum. And another one which is about World of Stories, so helping, Um, kids who are from you know deprived areas to get access to books at school Um, and so I was really impressed with that in my research you know through the sort of interview process and thinking about whether I wanted to work for Penguin Um, and then sort of being actually in the company on a day-to-day basis I get the opportunity to be involved even if I'm not part of the core project team delivering that work so it means that if I go on the Internet, there are volunteering opportunities there for me to go and run a session in school. And it's, you know, a lot of the time when organisations say that they care about volunteering and giving back to the community, they'll give you volunteering days, but you have to jump through hoops to get them. Whereas that is isn't the case, you know, at Penguin, but very much it. it's I wouldn't say it's in your face, but it's easy to get to. And you know that you can be part of something. And I think that makes you. If I can be part of something that attracted me to the company in the first place, that gives me that sort of sense of direction and meaning.
6: So, so those are kind of picking up on the, some of the points Chris was making about the iconography of the values and the culture. Those are those are some of those demonstrable hallmarks and and and, and icons of those values being being demonstrated mm-hmm. in terms of the, how they go about doing things. Ta- thank you, Tamar. A, a couple of couple of minutes on on your take on the topic before we sort of open up discussion. Well hello everyone
7: and thanks also for having me along to today's session. It's been so interesting so far and um, thanks to Chris and Ben for all of their insights. I think we already heard a lot about why this really matters specifically right now in terms of the backdrop, you know the, the social, economic, political backdrop that there is um, in, in our in our world and our society. Uh, it's really hard to attract talent to organisations anyway Um, And and making sure that when you've done that attraction piece, that those values are then lived and that you can keep that talent has got to be one of the the key priorities. So to to go out there with sort of like a shiny message about why you should join an organisation and then find that doesn't match up. It, you know, it, it, is a, it has a massive impact on the time, on the cost, on the experience, on the reputation of your brand, and uh, you know that that's absolutely critical in today's world. So for me, making sure that you know the values that you talk about really are lived and experienced is so critical. We're noticing it so much when we are hiring. You know, people are being really selective about why they want to join your organisation. They're asking great questions about what you stand for, what your purpose is, what you really do about that, and you know, really, really interviewing you right back as they absolutely should to say, yeah, but you know, how does this really show up in your organisation? So I think it's on on all of us to make sure that what we put out there and what we say, not just for new talent, but also for our existing colleagues. You know who might feel that there's a you know another campaign that's come along. You know whatever the flavour of the month is, we have to make sure that their experience is the one that we believe everyone should be having inside of our our businesses.
6: Lovely, thank you, Tamar. Um, excellent. I, it, it's we we talked. Charlotte was talking with with Chris about the importance of one brand inside and out. And when we talk, when those of us who work in brands talk about brands, it's about a promise of consistency of touch points so that wherever people come into contact with an organization, they're getting a consistent experience. Um, when it comes to recruitment, um, I, I wonder perhaps I could chuck this back to you, to you, Chris. You talked about your academy and those graduates coming out and buzzing at the end of their, their, their qualification period. But do you do you start to embed your values at the very earliest stages of recruitment, to, you know, picking up on Tamar's point there?
5: Absolutely, um, yeah. So we, we 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 I mean, and we're constantly checking to see how many people kind of engage at the initial stage of recruitment, through to kind of becoming reps and joining First Directs and what the fallout rate is, and, and why that's happening. And being very clear as to what organisation we are, the values that we have, um, the the way that you operate um, is absolutely at the front and centre of. Of, of kind of who we are and, and what we want to be, so the the very casualness of our business needs to be to be kind of part part of that. Um, you know, I, I got told off the other day because I was wearing a Fred Perry t-shirt and I did an update to our executive uh, within HSBC, and and my feedback from my boss was it was a brilliant. He said you managed it brilliantly, but make sure you put your right clothes on. And I that but, but it, that's what first direct is all about
6: they were just jealous that they can't they don't live on the same brand as you that's
5: what uh, it just shows that i am a i'm a, a man child really i'm am 55 <laughs> but i'm more like five to be honest in terms of that sort of thing but is it all, all all the things need to add up you can't be you can't wear a suit and say the values give a shit it just mm. kind of doesn't resonate mm. you, you can't you can't you can't have a what we've got a black and white zebra at our front door and then make people filling triplicates if they kind of want to buy a sandwich through expenses. You, The whole thing has got to line up. And that, apps, that completely works through the recruitment process as well.
6: Yeah. So, so Shahina, you're relatively new to Penguin Random House. So you experienced their recruitment process at the
0: beginning, didn't you? Did you, did you get a sense of that early on? Yeah, I did. I actually... Um had quite a few interviews before I got the role and um, in one of my final interviews with um, the director of my division we were just having a chat and she talked about okay so what does it look like to get the best out of you at work Um, and you know we had a chat about that and then she also asked me so what does it look like when you're stressed You know, if you're feeling burnt out and how 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 could we support you if you're going through that? And so for me, it was really unusual to have that kind of conversation at an interview level in the first place. But then having um, the opportunity to see if that translates into my day to day experience. So when I was actually in the office um, on Monday um, each week, we have a weekly catch up, but it's got nothing to do with work. We just sort of do a temperature check on how everybody's feeling, what's going on with them. And also we, you know, very much my manager always asks me, uh, what's going on with you? How How's your workload looking? Is there anything that I can do to support you? And just sort of knowing that it's not just about the work that I'm doing, but also about how I'm feeling in my role makes a big difference. So I do feel that that what I liked about Penguin through the interview process is translating in my day to day. And that makes a big difference because I feel that I can be myself.
6: Mm, mm. Excellent.
0: Can First of all, am I being
6: able to be heard now? Apparently I was a bit quiet. Is that better? Yes. Yeah, great. OK, sorry about that. Um, OK, let's let's move on from recruitment, which is the sort of start point of the whole thing. And I think many of our listeners would be interested to hear from our panel, any experiences that they perhaps can bring to this discussion about where, where they have themselves learned from past mistakes, past mistakes about how important this topic is, how important it is to get this right, you know, whether they've seen examples where people haven't lived the values and what the result, what the impact has been or where, where. um, So Nita, can you perhaps kick us off with that?
2: I've been incredibly fortunate. I mean, in the sense that the you said my background. You know, I worked for Unison for the trade union for uh, you know about seventeen years, and then I worked for Tony Blair at Downing Street for seven years, and now I run. I don't run. I don't run. I'm the director um, of the of the IPA. I've been incredibly fortunate in my in my career. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons that this, we're getting to an incredibly important touch point here because the truth of the matter is, you know, the UK is full of people with broken hearts. And I don't mean people who've been mismatched on Tinder. I mean, people who have joined an organization because they've been attracted by what it says about itself, you know, and and then they come in and they find that the reality is just completely different. That an organization that sort of says that it is, you know, that it is trusting or it is, um, uh, you know, that it it engages people, enables people to bring their whole selves to work. It's absolutely nothing of the sort. And that it's actually a toxic culture, which the organization's um, leaders, you know, either aren't aware of or aren't prepared to do anything about. And that's why I'm so fascinated by First Direct, because as I said at the beginning, we, uh, you know, we've known and. And and had excellent relationships in terms of engagement, success with with the kind of operating model, particularly of First Direct. What I'm I really want to know how that you have sustained it, because so many organisations I work with they've had actually quite a positive culture, and then some wretched disruptor has come in, because either they th- you know either they're sort of people on the board who think oh this is just you know we need to think about something new, and somebody has come in and and has wrecked not have been a perfect culture, but it was a culture that people understood and liked. Now, I'm not saying organizations don't need to change, of course they do. All right, but the but the approach so often is to sort of slash and burn and dist- and destroy the culture, you know, and then as I say, you know, the impact on the organization is is catastrophic. And the reason this particularly matters at the moment is the state of the labor market. Because for a while, and I don't know how long this is going to last. Ah, uh, people have choices, you know. Um, and it, it, one of the biggest, the reputational risk of of, as it were, glass door outing you, you know, it, it is now huge. So this, a, the the, the correlation between the behaviour and the values, but but being able to protect the best of the culture from, um, you know, from wreckers coming in from the outside, I'm increasingly concerned about. You know, the fact that, that, that people think, oh, the new, you know, oh, we've been doing this for years. Oh, God, we better change it. But that's only yeah, evidence. And new then, they, they employ, then they employ a Dominic Cummins or something to come in and just blow the place up.
6: OK, can I, can I, what I'd like to do, because I think that's a very interesting point to, to explore with Chris. And then I'd like to come to Tamar. So what I, perhaps if Chris, you could just in a word or two answer that question of Nita's how have you managed to maintain this consistency because clearly that has been one of your strengths over time um and uh, and, uh, and it it can't just be because you've always been um connected with hSbc you know they, they're, they're potentially more to it than that um i guess and then i'd like to come to Tamar because i know from your perspective, Tamar, your organization is on a journey, has been on a journey. And I think perhaps you've got you might have some interesting observations to make around how you maintain this and how you kind of keep the momentum going. So Chris, first of all, if I may.
5: Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very briefly I think uh, first thing I think say, Nita, is there'll be some people in First Direct today who are not happy. And I'm very conscious that. Y- Often your happiness, in in the broadest sense of the word, is a function of your line manager and the relationship. You can be trapped. You can be in a great business, trapped behind a, a line manager, a poor line manager. So I think there's a constant watch out to making sure that you don't get rhetoric from someone in my sort of job, which isn't playing out to everybody. So that I I I, I won't want to. Th- I I think that's and that, that I I'm actually getting slightly. Bears in the back of my neck because I know that they'll be true, and I absolutely would fight like Billy O to make sure that that person can bring their best selves to work. In terms of what, how we've maintained it for so long, I think it's because um, there is a direct correlation to what matters to business, which is to, to you know fundamentally to make money. Is it or, or the way that because we 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 are standing up a, a new purpose for FD, which is about fighting the unfairness holding back young people. We we put that at the centre of of what we're about. But when I I talk to that, I always say every business has to make money because otherwise it won't exist. And every business talks to the fact that it delivers great customer service. Most businesses talk about it and don't do it. FD, not me, FD has done that for many, many years. The reason FD has done it for so many years is because there's a direct correlation between brilliant customer service and commercial outcome. And I think that is the way to get even the more most kind of hard-headed, for want of a better word, business managers to line is to say this is your route to success. Put this issue in the way of being a successful and sustainable business, and, and I, I'm a true believer in that. If if, if we let our customer service grow d- deteriorate, to you know we could put an IVR in, you know, which means that you know we could be more efficient. We can employ less people. I, I, I have pressure on that from people behind me all the time. And I absolutely am not going to do that because I can show them that we have one of the most commercially successful models as a function of our customer service.
6: Lovely. Thank you. Tamar, let's talk a little bit about the journey that you're on and how that plays to these points around trying to be consistent about doing this stuff properly.
7: Yeah, okay. so Phoenix is an organisation that grows partly through mergers and acquisitions and so over the sort of past 15 years a lot of my time has been spent on how we integrate businesses and how we look at the different structures, the different approaches, the different cultures and how we can create a sense of, of oneness. So we've had some success and so we've had some disasters I think you know sometimes it just doesn't work does it so when we were actually approaching it this time around so think back to sort of the middle of, of 2020 we've got a new chief exec we were setting out a really new and clear purpose about what we wanted to be um in financial services and we were also bringing on board another organisation whilst we were midway through integrating um, an earlier acquisition and it gave us a really good opportunity to think about what we wanted to stand for what we wanted to do what we wanted to be and for us to connect to everybody behind that so one of the things that that's really worked for us is to do that as, as a group of people so we brought business leaders together right in those early days of, of building our new organization to talk about our new purpose but how we were going to get there what our story was where we'd come from where we wanted to go to, what it was going to take, and some of the steps we might need to, to do to get there. We, we then use that story as a way to engage everybody across our business in our purpose and our values. We talk about our purpose as being our North Star and our values as being the way in which we're going to get there. And in in order to, to do that, we need to see those values lived and breathed all day, every day. So that's the sort of the aspiration, but how, how do you then sort of turn that into action So we we started off by really looking at the primary and the secondary levers of, of change and looked at where we spent a lot of our time actually when we analysed ourselves was in that secondary layer. So talking the talk, getting the policies right, the practices right, the processes in place. But we weren't seeing enough of that walking the walk. So the focus that we've really had is on amplifying the leaders to be able to walk the walk and not just walk the walk, but also talk the talk and connect the two pieces up One of the things that's been really powerful in that has been we've created what we've called Leading with Purpose. We've switched to being a purpose led organisation and this has made a massive change to the culture and the tone. That that real tone from the top that says this is about us helping people secure a life of possibilities through the way in which they save for their futures. And, And that tone has enabled all of the other work that we've been doing. So leading with purpose enables us to bring together, we bring 450 leaders together. We did it all the way through the, the pandemic remotely to connect into a, a, a place where we, we talk and we learn together and we try and we test new tools of how to empower our people. This is like a really fundamental piece to unlock and um, the way we make the culture change
6: happen. Um, it, like lots of you, we've got- um, Interesting. You know,
7: sorry, do want, yeah, I was just going to say-
6: no, 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 please. I'm not trying to stop you, but i am just just wanted to align that with the point that Chris made about autonomy in his, in, in his conversation with Charlotte, you know, this, yes. that that Dan Pink, autonomy, mastery and purpose. How do we find a way to give people autonomy? Um, and you're talking about walking the walk and talking the talk of your leaders. That plays very much to, um, I, I loved I jotted it down during your interview, Chris, mouth shut, ears open. know these are we're seeing some consistency aren't we of of the things that are done when things are done well Uh, without wishing to shut you off time or we're kind of running tight on time but so when things aren't going so well what i want to turn now to talk about what gets in the way of delivering on this fourth enabler what and perhaps what are some practical ways that leaders can close that say, do gap that what we mean by that, you know, they'll say they're doing one thing, but actually they're demonstrating a totally opposite behaviour. Um, Nita, um, first of all, and then and then Shahina, um, what, what do you think kind of gets in the way? And, and, and one thing that leaders can do to try and close that gap, leaders or managers?
2: Well, you know, I think part of the problem is, as Paul Simon said, you know, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. So being in an organisation where You know it's the um it's it's not the talk it's the walk what mechanism my challenge to organizations and this is actually really the third in neighbor what mechanisms do you have to keep your organization honest against the values and the behaviors what you know how can you call it out and that comes down to frankly employee voice i mean do you have the arrangements as a fail safe whereby people in the organisation are expected uh, to call out what they think is, is behaviour that doesn't uh, match the values, or what happens to people? I mean, are they sent to Siberia if they kind of say, hang on a minute, I don't think that's how we do things around here. Uh, you know, are they kind of fingered and, and, and then disappeared? So w- my challenge is what mechanisms have you got right, to keep your organisation on the straight and narrow? Do you listen to your uh, employees? Do you make it possible for them to call things out? And does something happen when they do? Because, you know, if you look at all those public inquiries that they've ever been on egregious corporate behaviour, no people always knew. I mean, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't kind of four people doing it in, you know, whatever it was necessarily in a back room. But what was happening in those organisations that people weren't calling out you know, the fact that there was uh, not just no trust, but the consequences of, of this behavior. What was happening when people tried to call it out? Or oh, basically, is there a culture of bullying and intimidation and people are too scared? So this is how all of this fits together. You know, but having the mechanisms that keep you on the straight and narrow. And I, people have heard me say this before, but your employees are your best canary in the coal mine. Because if you make it possible and in, and and mm-hmm. encourage them to tell you the truth, you will find out what's happening in the organisation, and if the values and the behaviours are, uh, you know, are crashing against each other.
6: So it's not so much then necessarily that that there may be barriers in the way that stop these things happening, but that organisations haven't got in place the um, processes and ways and resources to listen and respond, or give people the chance to speak up and be dealt with supportively, an action, appropriate action taken as a result.
2: I mean, look, I think it's both. Let me just say, right. because you've got to, you've got to be clear. What is the behavior set that makes the values live? Mm-hmm. You know, values are lovely, lovely, lovely. You know, but at the end of the day, I working in an organization, I need to know what are the behavior parameters, mm-hmm. right? That are expected of me to make those um, values live i mean yeah. value uh, behaviours are of critical importance and exactly what chris has described about how you on board and how you expect to um, you know your behavioural expectations that that's absolutely right in my view to focus on what does this mean for me in my job on a day-to-day basis
6: yes you know, shaheen how how do you take that on from your from your point of view um
0: yeah i would d- I definitely echo that listening and then showing your listening is crucial to making this happen and I think also giving you know your your employees that feeling that they have a stake in this as well that they can help shape and drive those cultures and values forward I think um Ben mentioned how you know the murder of George Floyd got a lot of people in organizations talking about sort of um injustice and um you know fairness and equality and one of the things that happened within um, Penguin Random House was that you know there was a bit of a groundswell of conversation about okay well what do we you know we started talking about diversity in authors but what about sort of the diversity in you know what does a person who works in publishing look like and is that what we want it to look like and so um, you know on the back of that sort of we Penguin created this diversity and inclusion um, strategy and it's But it's not just from the top down, I think every single level of the business is involved in shaping and keeping momentum on that. So we have, um, you know, sort of an inclusion action group, which is made up of leadership, but also people from across the business. There are loads of um, network groups, whether it's about accessibility, whether it's about sort um, sort of ethnic minorities or socioeconomic status. know we all have an opportunity to shape and give feedback and as part of the staff forum i've been in conversations as the internal comms manager and they're not always comfortable conversations but the ceo is there and having those conversations and i think that's really important because he's then held accountable because that is something that's in the diary regularly and we have to show how we're making progress and also feedback sometimes be open when there it's something that you can't fix because we know that and i think there's otherwise we wouldn't need to have these sessions and conversations if it was already perfect and we know that it isn't but at least we're showing the wherewithal to move forward in that and i think the other thing that i think we've said before in other um sessions that we've had is that what me- what gets measured is what matters or the other way around but anyway <laughs> um it's every single person in the organisation has to have an objective related to diversity and inclusion and you get to choose what that is but it's something that is part of your day-to-day and you know your experience is completely impacted by that
6: so what you're describing there is and, and and sort of tying it tying this all together we have our organisational values values that are just values on the wall, on a poster or on a lanyard around your neck, mean nothing without the relevant behaviours to support them We, All of us you know, understand that it's the behaviours that bring those values to life. Um, but equally, um, you need to make sure that you've got the organisational processes and procedures and practices and policies in place that don't contradict and fly in the face of those things. So Chris, to Chris's point about, you know, triplicate applications for X, Y, Z. You know, they, they go against the, against the ethos. So um, we've got a couple of minutes. I just want to finish on one, one, one quick thing, if I may. Um, So one of our thought and action groups that engage for success, the line managers thought and action group, um, identified that line managers living the company's values is far more important, a driver of engagement than having senior leaders living the values. First, final question to the, each of you. Do you agree with that? And if so, why do you think it is? Um, and if you don't agree, then why not? Because we've talked a lot about leaders um, and role modelling, and that's important. Um, so Kamar first. Do you do you agree with that statement in your experience?
7: I'm. uh, It's a hard one to answer directly in that way. I I think that the line managers have such a significant impact on people's experience. If you can't get the messages from the top down to the line managers, and they can't create the environment where everyone can thrive every day, then you can have all the best messages, but you know we, we're not going to give people the right experience. So I think they're absolutely critical. But for me, it's got to be both at the same time, a tone from the top, but also those line managers living and breathing those messages every day to create the right environment.
6: Lovely. Thank you. Chris, closing words from you before we finish off with, with Shahina and Nita.
5: Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I, everybody thinks, I mean, hopefully you can tell by my, the way I am in my accent, they all think I'm posh and I'm living in some sort of dream world and to be honest, I don't really do an awful lot for this company. It's, it's the people who are managing the people every day. That's your manager. You see every day that if they, if they are rude or, um, creating a, a kind of poor environment and not allowing surgical safety or manipulating you, that is your, they, they have greater direct impact on the real people. You know, I can wander onto a stage, say a bit of stuff, and then they'll wander off again. So I, I completely agree with
0: that because they're, they're right. bringing
5: it to a life in a real way.
6: Yes. Excellent. Thank you. And Shahina, and then we'll, we'll ask Nita to close.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that line managers can make and break your experience at work. I think um having a great line manager who lives the values of the company that you're attracted to makes a massive difference in your experience. And I think that what, organizations need to do is reward and reinforce behaviors that support values because you can have you can work at a great company um, and a new manager comes along that brings that baggage from a different company and the different values and different ways of working and your experience of work can completely shift so it's up to their managers and the leadership to make sure that they you know not just speak the talk but walk the talk as well and how they're working with their team members because like you said if you don't have you can have all of the shiny new things at the top but if that's not your lived experience if your manager is not reinforcing that with you then you're it's not going to work
6: Thank you, and so Nita, that probably leads us on to a plug for what we might what might have to be our next Engage for Success event to look at the enabler around line managers. But uh, do you want to just finish off with uh, your your take, and then we'll we'll close today?
2: I, I mean, I completely agree with um, everything that the rest of the panel has said. It it has to be both. It has to be conscious. It has to be lived. It has to be ongoing, and it has to be you know something which. Um, the, the leadership of the organisation, the HR function, and, and so on—you know—are really constantly um, aware of. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, it's a fantastic conversation to have in the organisation, but you've got to be, you gonna know, you've got to be quite a um, confident organisation and quite a confident leadership to kind of move into this style, particularly if you've had a more traditional command and control. Um, but my goodness me, with the current state of the labour market and the challenges that our country is facing. I mean, we really need now to start getting this right.
6: Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, a a rallying cry to all of us and everyone listening, I'm sure. So um, really all that remains is for me to wrap things up. Um, I would like to say a very big thank you, um, Nita, for hosting today's event. Um, All of you for listening, um, but particularly to Ben Page from Ipsos for a fascinating keynote that's really sort of set the context. To Chris Pitt from First Direct and Charlotte Dahl for drawing out his uh, his stories and and, and, and tails and to Tamar Hughes and a Shahina um uh, oh, Shahina Romaron Sakadina, sorry, I should have got that off the tip of my tongue, so, Shahina, my apologies. Um, Please do get involved in Engage for Success. Um, You'll see some ways in which you can do that um, on the on the screen now. Um, We're always keen to hear your stories. Um, You can find lots of resources on our website where you can sign up for our newsletter. Don't forget as well, we've got our our weekly radio podcast with with more of the same. Um, So um, very, very keen to um, have people who are involved who may be first-time engagers with Engage for Success as a result of today's session. So most importantly, sign up for the newsletter where you'll hear more about future events like this and also what's happening in your locality and what might be happening around particular Uh, topic-specific thought and action groups that are are going on across the movement as well. Um, The only other thing that remains is to do a bit of a plug for our pledge wall, um, which is I think the uh, slide that you're seeing now. So this is a a, a new part of our website which we've created where we want to share stories of organisations' approaches to employee engagement. It's a very simple little form that we ask you to fill in. um, And all we're asking is for you to share with us your story, commit to put the principles of employee engagement at the heart of your people strategy are for enablers. You maybe don't call them that, but the principles will will, will will no doubt be there. Become an advocate in your workplace and your practice um, and provide us with that information. We'll put your story on our pledge wall along with your organisation's logo um, and we will provide you um, a badge, Engage for Success Advocate, put on your recruitment, talent attraction, employer brand, collateral um, within your own organization. So a nice win win for everybody, because at the end of the day, um, employee engagement is a win win for making our workplaces better places to be, inspiring our people and workplaces to thrive. And to Chris's point, making sure that our organisations are profitable, financially successful and continue to be sustainable into the future. So thank you everyone for joining us who's been listening and particularly to our our panel and our speakers for their contributions today. Thank you and goodbye.
0: Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.